Welcome to Arash's World. Today we have another Sigourney Award recipient. I, I've interviewed 2.5 of them and we have the final piece of the puzzle. Uh, the, the last half, last but not least, of course. Uh, welcome to Arash's World, uh, Dr. Jill Shar. Well, thank you for having me, Arash. It's fun to be Wonderful. here. Wonderful. Wonderful. So if we can get started, and that's something I, I always do, if you can just present yourself in, in any ways you see fit uh, to get this started here. Well, you're you probably hear my accent, so you'll realize that I come from Scotland. Well, you might not realize that. You'll know it's British of some variety. Um, yeah, I was educated there, did my psychiatry training in Edinburgh, my psychotherapy training in London at the Davistock Clinic, and then came here and retrained because that's the American way. Mm -hmm. Did you notice any any big differences between the the two ways of of training and what what's kind of oh, night and day? I mean, night and day. Okay. Yeah. Um. It, in Scotland, you know, I was I was trained in ECT, in group therapy, meliotherapy, pharmacology, and if I wanted psychotherapy, which I did, I had to do that after hours. There, there were people who would train me, but I had to seek them out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there, there was some kind of psychoanalytic thinking, but it, it was not the general way things were done mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in psychiatry, that is. Um, but in London, then my training was entirely psychotherapy, but I had to leave Scotland to get that degree of immersion in psychoanalytic thinking. And of course, then that got interrupted when I met David, who was on sabbatical in London and moved here and then redid, redid a couple years of child psychiatry, but, you know, which was an add on. That was good. And then shortly after that began psychoanalytic training, which had always been my goal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I can see that you you uh, you take on challenges and, and you're not limited by by any any setbacks or any limits uh, themselves. So uh, it was also your idea from what I gathered with uh, my, in my conversation with David to yeah. uh, promote distance education and to embrace technology at a time where it wasn't that popular to do so. This is true. Now, don't get the idea that I am a a techie because I am not. I'm the kind of person that doesn't really want to spend time on the phone with people. I, you know, I like a short conversation in person. That's it. Um, but it was necessary because we realized that our branch of psychoanalysis being British object relations theory was rather rare in this country. And yet there were people who had been reading about it in the International Journal who really wanted an immersion in that branch of psychoanalysis. So they were coming from all over the states to an, a residential week of study. You know, and we imported teachers from, from Britain mainly at that time um, to, you know, to give the real thing, not, not some kind of Americanized version of it. Mm -hmm. And we had a good time doing that. And sometimes we, we admit to ourselves that although we were providing access for people in disadvantaged areas, um, we, we were really educating ourselves because we were bringing experts in the field that was of interest to us. Mm -hmm. Sharing that 
I think this is the power of technology. And I myself was mostly anti-technology just because I'm kind of old fashioned. I like my old, my books. I don't like uh, reading books. on screens. I like physical books. And, and books, so, books. exactly. And, and pages, I, you know where you are. Yeah, of course. I'm like that too. And, and so, but, but you're open to the potential of it. And, uh, and I wasn't, I was actually hesitant of uh, technology could um, um, help with teaching, for example, that we, it could be an effective means of doing so. And that was before the pandemic. And then right after when I tried it out, I realized, no, there is so much potential. It has so much power and I fully embrace it. And uh, in, in many ways, I prefer it. And uh, in our conversation with David, we talk about all the benefits too. I mean, it has drawbacks like anything, but there are a lot of benefits to using technology. Well, it gives you access, gives you reach. And this is, this is important if you want ideas to spread and be modified and elaborated on and, you know, contribute to the pool of ideas. That's, that's the idea of it. Now, in the beginning, yes, I had the idea, but, but David was willing to do the technical part of it and suffer through those early years on Polycom, using the intranet with lots and lots of dropped lines, uh, which I, I'll confess that made me very anxious. I was afraid I'd never get back to the site that I was speaking to. But I noticed that over time, people became very patient with it. They were so glad to have the content that they were willing to put up with the, with the glitches and the irritations and the being locked out and so on. Now it's with, you know, with mo modern methods, the, the one we use is Zoom, but there are others that work quite well. Um, yeah, you don't have those problems. It's grown so much. I mean, I, I grew up uh, without technology most of my life, and I had my my first email address at university, and uh, it was a big deal. And the internet was was very slow. When you go to a website, it takes like ten minutes for a, a page to load, and uh, and phone lines. We used the phone line, so it was a phone line, and we we had to take turns. If you're talking on the phone, you have to wait. So there's all these challenges, right. but but what, again, what I'm impressed here that you kept on. And you said, this is an idea to, to invest in time, effort, and so on. It will pay, uh, pay off. And it did in, in, in so many ways. And thanks to, to Zoom, we can have these conversations. I can, have, I can expand my reach in terms of interviews. And before I had to move to a place or talk over the phone, which is not the same, really. Yeah, um, true, true. Yeah, we would have been talking. I'd have had my headset on and mm -hmm. we'd be talking. Yeah, I, I mean, I have done that too in the early days. When people were not comfortable with Polycom, or they didn't have access to Polycom. Only certain institutions could have access to something like that. Um, so, yeah, I would be consulting to people using the phone. And I was hesitant because, as I told you, I don't like talking on the phone for hours. But when it was work related, it was fine. We had a, we had a goal. We had a piece of work to get done. And I was quite surprised that my sensibility um, shifted using other channels of communication. My imagination became much more active. Hmm. And, and we're for the lack of images. Yeah. Exactly. 
and we, we see that across the board now. A lot of physicians are um, using technology and they prefer it in many ways. I think from studies I've seen, a, a lot of, a majority of them prefer using technology for, for various treatments, again, not all. But, um, but also uh, patients themselves and clients and students. So we see this across the board that uh, there are many benefits there. Now, it cannot replace the in-person contact and conversation and so on. But do you think it's still possible to have intimate conversations over Zoom and uh, using technology? To me, yes, most <laughs> definitely. That's been my experience. I, now, uh, I can relate to what you're saying about not really trusting it or not wanting to lose out on in-person connections. There are some people for whom it's essential to be in the same room. They want to sit on that chair that they know is your chair. They want to lie on your couch that you have prepared this setting for them. They come to you and they want to be held there in your mind and in your office space. Um, and there are others who, who don't need that. They can create their own space. Now, even when a patient comes into this office, this is my office, actually. I'm not working from home. Actually, it's at my home, so I'm doing both. Anyway, they come in here. Yes, we're in the same room, but where we meet is in, is in a space that is a mental space, an emotional space, a psychosocial space that that we create in our conversation. It, it's the conversation that's the thing. Unlike physical medicine, there's no touch here. There's no need to examine or to look closely at body parts or whatever. You're, you're just entering into a realm of thought and feeling. And it's, it's just as easy to create that realm and, and the use also of apps. I mean, men, there are mental health apps where you can also immediately contact people and that kind of access. And I, I like what you're saying because we're meeting like halfway. This is this is my home and office and this is yours. And you can also get a snapshot of, of where I live and my immediate environment, which you don't get when the person comes to your office. We're, you're right. missing out on that information as well. Right. And you don't, you don't see the cat that wanders across the street. Exactly. You yeah. don't hear the dog that's barking incessantly. Which, yeah. And yeah. I, I think people also feel probably more comfortable in many ways in their own environment because they're not in a new place. This is my home. And then you feel maybe you can open up more about things that are happening in your life. That, that really does happen for some people. <laughs> for some, there, some you, you would think, oh, this person couldn't possibly tell such a thing over the internet. They'd be worried about hacking or whatever. But it they realize that hackers are not interested in last night's dream or what fantasy you had that they're they're looking for where the money is so <laughs> um it's not really going to be a that big of a problem and once they figure that out then then yes the distance enables them to say things that would be very hard to say if they're worrying about maintaining some kind of appropriate social manner <laughs> in person that is yeah yeah, yeah. And that's again, you mentioned, uh, Arash, you yeah. mentioned the apps. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, technology has been fantastic for physical medicine, for diagnosis, reading x rays, even, and also apps that help track medication for medication resistant patients. It, it gives them support to know the doctor is, is 
totally in touch with how they're doing or the nurse who's following them, let's say, or the physician's assistant, or in the case of mental health patients, might be a social worker who's keeping track of the client. And it's, um, it's, it just gives tremendous outreach clinically and in the teaching setting. But I think also that in the mental health field, because there are apps that, and it, it sounds kind of creepy too, using an, uh, artificial intelligence, but um, they can tell by the sound of your voice, how you're feeling. So you can have like some, you record your voice and they have the camera, they can see the, your, your eyes and it can analyze that information. And so in, in many ways, uh, you can have constant contact with the patient and just seeing their state of mind throughout the day. So it's, it's, it's applicable to many different areas as well, depending on how, how we use it. Well, a scenario as such as you're describing suggests that's a person who would otherwise really be in the hospital and mm -hmm. maybe they should be. So it's not, mm -hmm. not good to use it as a substitute for an, a higher level of care. That's but right. it is good to use it if that person cannot be transported to a hospital, let's say. <laughs> so, and we are, we are going through a pandemic. And of course, but I think if uh, there was any time that we could deal with a pandemic, it would be now. So this is in many ways the best time to have one because again of technology that we have, because of, of being able to work at home, of being able to provide care uh, remotely. I think that is hugely important. If it happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it would have been more devastating than it is now. It's still devastating, of course, but much more so, I would think. I think it's maybe the one good thing you could say about the pandemic. <laughs> it, it has really encouraged people to move with the times and explore technology and not reject something that they've never tried. I mean, there were many therapists who who felt strongly the body must be in the room with the therapist. And now they've discovered, while it may be preferable for some people, it's definitely not essential. Mm -hmm. But it's also shifted our way of thinking. Many, many things have happened. And I, I don't know if it's the, just the, the stress that, that is bringing out uh, these, uh, these movements and these emotions, or maybe it's because we have more time for introspection, because we are thinking about things more deep. Maybe we're saving more time because we're not commuting to work and have, we have this extra time that we can spend in different ways. But I'm quite fascinated by how much uh, comes into the open and that was hidden before and that we didn't really have access to. And again, through technology, through social media, through the media and so on, we are learning a lot of things we didn't read. We might've known about it, but it didn't come out into the open as much as it is happening now. That sharing of feelings, Arash, mm -hmm. you, as you know, there's a, still a stigma about mental illness. Yes. People don't talk about their personal miseries easily. With the pandemic, we all have miseries. We're all stuck at home. We're all missing our friends. We all are regretful that we couldn't see our newly born grandchild for two years. Everybody is suffering. The, the young people aren't getting to go to the bars. The old people are terrified of dying. The, the parents are worried that their parents are going to die. It's we're all facing tremendous death, anxiety and insecurity. And everybody's talking about it. <laughs> and it's normal. It's exactly it's, really it's normalized. It's equalized. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 
I remember when it started because we were thinking, okay, well, this is happening in China. This is not affecting us. And this is the, the way of thinking we have wars in this place, famines in this place. But now here we have something that it happens there. It happens everywhere. And we have it with the new variant, which happened in a different country. But now we are all uh, suffering consequences together. So it's not just an isolated uh, incident or event. It, well, we're this, truly connected in many ways. This is the global economy. Mm -hmm. And technology is driving airplanes all over the all over the world. Of course, we're all in contact. We're in mm -hmm. communication with other countries all the time. There's... Yeah, there's tremendous um, interconnectedness. I remember when the attack started in Wuhan, which was actually the first place I ever went to China to teach. Um, they, we contacted our friends, so sorry you're, you're suffering with this. Oh yes, and the government has us all under lockdown. And we're thinking, oh, that's the Chinese government putting people under lockdown. You know, there's no personal choice there whatsoever. Um, and at the end of the meeting, a month later, January, it's in, in San Francisco, I think it was, it came to the States. And we have another meeting and that this woman at the end of the meeting, she's screaming, wear a mask, wear a mask. This woman is crazy. Like she thinks you have to wear a mask to deal with this. And they actually, China sent masks to all of us, little care packages. I uh, started wearing a mask and then it became de rigueur and then it became habit. And mm -hmm. now everybody's wearing masks. Yeah. And I don't think I'll give it up because I'm so thrilled to have had no cold for two years. Good for you. Good I'm for not you. the only one. And same here. Yeah, yeah. With the flu, we noticed we could control it. We did last year. So it was so simple. <laughs> Just yeah. wear a mask, wash your hands. And and a lot of people don't don't follow through with it. And I, I had a prejudice against masks myself at the beginning, before the pandemic, of course, of course. where um, I, I had students from Asia who would uh, wear masks when they're sick. And I was like, or when they're not sick, even sometimes. Yeah. And I would be like amazed. Like, and I, I didn't I didn't like it. But then when we realized that this is something that's necessary, we started wearing as a family. My yeah. wife is a nurse and she was telling me I have to wear a mask. So yeah. I, I was obedient. <laughs> and um, people would look at us in a, in a strange way. It's just uh, they, they're kind of like, why are, the, are these people, this family, all of them are wearing masks? What's going on with them at the beginning of the pandemic? And now it's perfectly normal. And now we stare at people who are not wearing them. So it's it's quite fascinating from a psychological point of view how things are shifting so rapidly and views are changing so rapidly as well. And in different parts of the country, mm -hmm. views develop in different directions. Mm -hmm. So, so the, there's kind of a fragmentation of the national response to the threat of the virus, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, I'm all for people having individual choice, very much so. Um, and yet there is a public health aspect to this that you have to kind of put yourself second, I think. But not mm -hmm. everyone agrees with me. Everything it needs to be in balance. I think for me, it's not just it's one or the other. It's like finding the, the right way of doing things. And what is the best thing to do in this situation, the healthiest, not just for myself, but for everyone else? Because as we're seeing, uh, one thing that happens in a different country affects us so, so much more within the family, within the community. And we're in this together. I think that is something that should be the lesson of, of the pandemic. We're in it together. I hear that phrase 
all <laughs> over the place. Yeah, we're interested. But look, this is one thing that's great about Zoom. I can speak to you without a mask. <laughs> yes. And you get the full emotional contact with the person you're getting to know. So in the clinical setting, to be able to do that with a patient is much better than having the patient come in the office. I have to wear a mask. They have to wear a mask. It's, it's, it, it's an interference. Yeah. And, and, and what, what do you think are the consequences of that too? Because we are, uh, most of the information we get from our conversation is non-verbally and, uh, or also uh, we look at the person, we look at the facial expressions, the, the movements. And so when, when that's missing with the mask, um, how will that affect our, our means of communication with each other, as well as how will it affect the development of children? I mean, we still need to do a lot of research on it, of course, but what is your perception yeah. of this? I noticed that the, the children were scared of the masks. Mm. You know, they're scared not to see the features they recognize as a face, two eyes, nose, and mouth. Mm -hmm. um, it, half of it's missing. It's frightening. But now that they're, they've had experience with it, they, they just run around in their masks, no problem, relating to their friends, doing their schoolwork, and so on. Now, I did notice over the summer when the pandemic seemed to be lightening up, um, and they would run around without their masks. Then when they had to wear them again, there was a big reaction. Mm -hmm. they, they thought they didn't have, now they have to do it again. And then within a week or two, it's just the habit. It's unremarkable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also like it's hard to to read the emotions of the other person in many cases. I think we've gotten better because of practice of, of being in that situation. Mm -hmm. But in, in some cases, I would have to remind people that I am smiling behind the mask. You know, that maybe doesn't come through and just I'm joking, right? And 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 those oh, things I'm joking. Well, yeah. and, and those things are hard. An essential. <laughs> those things are a bit hard to communicate. But I was talking with, with Jorge, who, who's also a recipient of the Sigourney Award, and we talked about masks and how it used to, um, it had two functions, basically. It was either the bank robber, the criminal who's trying to uh, hide their identity, or the superhero who didn't want to know that uh, who he, who he was, really was. So and they, he was trying to conceal his identity as well. So um, that has changed now. And I, I, I go to banks and I'm expected to wear uh, a mask where uh, in the past that uh, wouldn't have been possible. They would have called the police on me. I wonder if that makes life easier for the bank robbers. <laughs> I, 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 I think... I'm rejected. <laughs> and exactly. I never thought of that. <laughs> but but it, it also kind of goes also with masks that we are wearing in many ways, even though we're we're not wearing a physical mask. But I think there's a, a lot of people who are wearing a, a persona on uh, like a different persona, project different persona to the world, whether it's through technology or again through the words and actions. And this is why I love psychoanalysis because uh, it gets to the truth, it gets to the root of the issue. And I think as a treatment, and uh, there are studies that show it, and, and, and David pointed out various studies, that uh, as a psychotherapy, it is uh, as effective as drugs, if not more so, and I would say more so in many ways. And so by looking through past the masks that we wear and these uh, images that we project into the world that do not correspond with reality. So I would like to talk a bit more about psychoanalysis itself, which is something okay. that I'm fascinated about. 
Okay, good. So good. what are your views on that? And, uh, and we can also talk about your specific practice and your um, view of uh, object relations. I think that's what you mainly practice. Sorry about that. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, well, yes, I, of course, I'm, I'm totally believing in the value of psychoanalysis because I've seen how it has helped people make really deep character change. Not, not everybody is looking for that. Not everybody needs that. There's nothing wrong with a person in a developmental crisis doing a little bit of CBT, alter their way of thinking about the situation they're in, and then they can move on. But that's not enough for everybody. There are people who have deeper conflicts that are not served well, but with a surface kind of intervention. And those people come for a psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Maybe it lasts a year, maybe it's once a week or twice a week. Then they, in the course of that, they get a little bit better. Maybe their symptoms are relieved, but they begin to see a world of possibility, <laughs> of depth, of experience, of levels of inquiry that they couldn't imagine before. Their goals change, and then they seek psychoanalysis, which is a more leisurely and more intense way of learning about themselves. Uh, it's also something that therapists benefit from having. It gives them a capacity to resonate with a wider range of emotional distress that comes to them in their patient populations. It gives them a way of um, not pushing away difficult matters because they haven't dealt with them themselves. The, the psychoanalysis for the therapists prepares the therapeutic instrument to deal with the challenges and the depth of difficulty that may come their way. And uh, it is when you go through the process, and as I was uh, basically analyzing myself and reading about it and going through the motions and feeling these, these feelings and traumas that I had in the past and continue to have, uh, it is a very difficult thing to face. It takes a lot of courage to do so. And it is painful, it is not easy, and it's not something that's a quick solution. A pill would be easy and then you're done with. It's, it's something that takes time and effort and persistence and being consistent with it. But when you come out of it, it is so life-changing and life-altering. And just to, to give an example, like my emotional connection with the world was good. I was, I, was, I was satisfied, but now I can see a much deeper level of commitment uh, with myself, with my family, with colleagues, with nature. And yeah. it is so, so beneficial and so uh, wonderful that I want other people to go through the same things as well, <laughs> even though they don't want to. I want to, in a way, I, I'd like to push them in that direction. And that's hard to do too, with the resistance they would have in that sense. Yeah, I've found pushing doesn't help much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> in any circumstance. Yeah. But but what you're doing is showing people what's possible. Mm -hmm. And some will pick up on it, some will not. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I was, when I, I have a, a lot of uh, psychologist friends, they're the, my famous, uh, the, my favorite people to, to, to hang out with and to talk to. And uh, before I was just locally with uh, instructors who would teach psychology and I would get along with them really well. And now I can do it through Zoom and uh, across the world, which is even, even more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and, and there are my favorite people, but I, I'm thinking like you see things so much more clearly. And now I can, in many ways I can do that too. I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, but I, I can see a lot of things that I hadn't seen before. And I can see what the issues are in various people around me, whether it's, it's friends, colleagues, or even family members. But um, I was always like thinking, why don't they tell us? Why don't you guys tell others what's wrong with them to help them? And I think the answer I, I came up with myself is because we can't push it onto them, like you are saying, and it's really their decision, but we can point the way. We can show with our actions, like you're saying as well. Yeah, well, you, you use YouTube to reach mm -hmm. people, teach them mm -hmm. about it. Uh, I haven't done that, but, but we use, we, well, yeah, we make um, videos and video lectures and so on that, that people can get access to, to help them see what's possible or what other people have found helpful. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that we've applied psychoanalysis to our family therapy. Um, family therapy has become very systematic in this country although it was it was invented by people who were analysts who then turned against analysis because they found family therapy so much more effective but we like to do both and we see the psychoanalytic attitude quite helpful in working with families and then the treatment of the person who comes to you for for, for intensive individual treatment is shared with the family in the family setting. Uh, thus, psychoanalysis has a prophylactic function, which I think you're very interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, prevention of mental exactly. illness through uh, sharing yeah. understanding, not necessarily through clinical work. And, and prevention is, is, is so important too when we talk about physical health and we do accept it. We say, well, uh, eat well, good nutrition, exercise and so on. But I don't think we do enough of mental health of like, uh, and this is slowly coming into focus now by sharing your feelings and accepting your feelings and all that. But it's, it's, it's still new in many ways, except if you are in that circle where you understand it. And I, I think we really need to move towards that so everyone can benefit and not just the, the people who seek help, but other people as well who are not seeking help. Correct. So there you come into the topic of consultation working with school counselors, let's say, mm -hmm. who, who meet lots and lots of children at the same developmental stages. And they're, they're helping them come to terms with who they are. They're, they're trying to understand their identity. They're trying to uh, deal with peer relations. They're anxious about their futures. There's a lot of work that can be done. And with a psychoanalytic approach, shared with those counselors, they can help the children go a little bit more deeper into the basic questions that adolescents are dealing with, particularly. Yeah, also it can change the dynamics in the school, the way the hierarchy is imposed on others can be lessened. Uh, working with doctors in emergency rooms, you can help them bear the stress of, well, under the pandemic, they're 
dealing with immense stress, there are often too few resources for them to access for their patients and makes them feel terribly inadequate and hurting on behalf of the patients. So teachers, uh, people who are in religious settings where they're counseling parishioners or members of a synagogue, let's say, um, they can all find psychoanalytic understanding useful, yes. especially if it's paired with understanding of group dynamics. Yes, absolutely. I, I would love that. And this is my, not all counselors and therapists are created equal. And so uh, I, I've, I've seen uh, the counselors at schools and so on when they talk, and I realized that uh, there are issues there with the counselors themselves. So there are things that they haven't resolved. And I can see that from my perspective, but yeah. they don't see it. And they're the ones who are counseling me and uh, telling me things about my son. And there was an issue where uh, with a counselor who um, um, I did strongly disagreed with. And, uh, and I, was, I was correct because the, the, the problem was a specific teacher that my, uh, my son was, was suffering from because of her style and her, she was abusive and cruel to the kids. But then it was kind of reflected back on, on my child as saying he's an anxious person. And yes. he's sensitive, but not anxious. And so the stress he would feel once I said, let's move him to another teacher and the yeah. problem will disappear. But the counselor said no. Oh. And they even wanted to say, well, let's look at maybe some types of medication. I said, no, this is not working for me. And I can see all these like dynamics that go on of projecting things onto others and transference and all that. And, and I realized that and I said, well, okay, let's see, results matter change him. If he still suffers, I am ready to, to consult with you and we can see about other options. And that was the issue. After that, he was perfectly happy and, and content. And he really enjoyed school after that again. Yeah. So, but, but that's the issue because you have people who are, um, they are trained, but they're not well-trained. And this is a bias here, of course. And, and, and again, I love talking to you because you would agree with me on this, that psychoanalysis <laughs> is so important. It's such a vital piece, that awareness of it. And I see it with, with people I interact and I know what the problem is, but I can't tell them because I know the defense mechanisms are so strong that they're gonna attack me back. So it's, it's, it's very complex. Well, do you find that your studying in psychoanalysis has given you compassion for those people? Absolutely, absolutely. You, you but, but that, that, that compassion behind these symptoms, there's always some conflict behind it. But so, I also want to help, and I, I can help, but they're refusing that help, and that is frustrating to me. Apart from the <laughs> compassion, it's like frustration. It's like I know what's the right thing to do. But uh, and, and I've seen it also in, in the field that I work in, in, in education, because I've always talked about being interactive and having a, um, um, a class that is fun and engaging. And that was not the case when I was going to university. And so they treated us like as like, you know, this this glass that needs to be filled. And I said, no, the glass is already kind of full with other stuff that we can combine. And you, I can use my knowledge to to add to this. And and the teaching would be just lecturing right, when I was at university. And it, wow. just recently that's changed. And there's this shift. It's like, yeah, student needs are important. <laughs> I've been saying that for like 10, 15 years. And why is nobody listening to me? But it, again, that's another part of the frustration. But um, I'm glad it is happening, though. So. Well, with distance education, we've realized we, we really have to be very careful about engaging the participants. 
you can't just lecture at them. <laughs> you, you, you have to use PowerPoint to give them images to look at. They can't just be all text. There's got to be some graphics to make it lively. <laughs> and you have to take pauses frequently for people to respond, ask questions, give feedback, um, share examples that will illustrate. And that way you can harness the wisdom of the entire group the personal examples and I, I use I use music in my classes as well because I teach languages and and that helps and just kind of varying it it's like uh, but also sharing personal information that I think that really helps that rapport with with students as well as a sense of humor I think and that is lacking with uh, academics some academics again I don't want to generalize and I didn't have that in my experience not enough I think and it is so helpful. It doesn't it doesn't diminish your seriousness about your work. I mean, you can be serious, but still have fun I mean, those and fun and work can go together as well. So I think we, we need to find a balance between these things as well. Well, hopefully they will go together. Mm -hmm. You know, there are two qualities that are very important in life. One is a sense of humor and the other is common sense. Sensitivity to others yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and when people who don't have a sense of humor already get suspicious of them, and I think there is some trauma there that you don't have a sense of humor or you 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 can't appreciate it enough that you're just so tense that it's 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 not working for you. So, and uh, one thing that really helped me in in, in my teaching that was actually uh, apart from psychoanalysis, I would say, uh, doing improv really helped me. Uh, because improv is like you have to deal with situation and be funny on the spot. And I remember before that, I would have, I would think of a funny line, but I would be hesitant. It's like, well, what if they react this way? What if it's not funny? What if it's taken out of context and they're offended by it? And then by that time, the time has passed and it wouldn't be funny anymore. But in improv, you have to act on the spot and be spontaneous. And that was such an, a good experience for my teaching, I found. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, teaching psychoanalytic theory involves teaching about primitive mental states mm -hmm. it's not too easy to crack a joke about that it, it can be very very hurtful yes uh, so we're somewhat limited but when it comes to relating personally to the students i think that although we don't tend to share personal details i mean there are branches of psychoanalysis where they believe the therapist should be very real and share their own personal histories and their own traumas and so on as a way well, to of an extent I mean, yeah but, but... We, we, we don't believe in that at all we think mm -hmm. that the treatment is for the patient what we'll will do is look at how we affect that patient mm -hmm. how our mannerisms or man or our our thinking bothers a patient or elucidates moments for the patient. We, we examine the relationship that develops between us and use it as a laboratory for understanding their path through life in other relationships. And I think teaching and learning go hand in hand because as, totally. as we are so teaching, we are learning. So they, they are not, it's not, and that was the idea before that I am the teacher and you are the learner, but that separation, it does not exist. And it's continuous, a continuous cycle where we learn from each other as we're going along. You know, this is something we found teaching in China. Those therapists who they've been successful students, they've gone to university, they've trained as a therapist. They are used to passive learning. 
they're used to sitting in a group and listening to the expert. So you come in as a therapist and they, or a therapy teacher, and they see you as the expert. You are there to deliver your opinion or to tell them what to do. Um, for them to accept the concept of we're working with the wisdom of the group is, it's like, it's just like really far. And, and, and for it them, takes a while for them to go along with it. I, and I've worked in a, uh, and, and with international students from, from various parts and uh, Asian students as well. And I know their sense of like the idea of perfection that you are also kind of like a father figure to them as an instructor. And you better so, be perfect too. And you better yeah. be perfect. And that's yeah. it. When I get a question, I say, I don't know. It's like, I just lost their, uh, their attention, their respect. It's like, oh, you yeah. cannot do that. Yeah. And I'm thinking they are learning too that it's okay not to be perfect and not to know everything, yeah. Mm -hmm. In in even in your field, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's also a shift for them. And again, that that kind of balancing act of like I will go towards you, but you also have come. We have to find a compromise between us. And it depends, I found it very interesting, depends on who I'm dealing with, who my students are, because I cannot use the same style for, for people from this country than, than others. So it, it is a bit of a challenge, but it's also, I see it as, as an opportunity to, to learn more about their culture as well. Yeah, well, it's a negotiation. Negotiation, I like that. You're yes. there to teach what you know, you're there to learn what they know, mm -hmm. which will improve the value of what you have to teach if you can match it to what their needs are. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, your view object relations is more about um, uh, relational, more about um, how we um, connect with others and so on. I would think as opposed to, would you say as opposed to Freud where it's like more like aggressive drives and so on, we focus more on the person or um, do you find again also a, a negotiation, a compromise between the two? Well, there's a whole spectrum, isn't there? There's, there's the yes, there is. focus on the drives. Yeah aggressive and sexual drives as the engine of development. And those are important, but in object relations, we see those as subsidiary to the main interest, which is to form a connection with another person, to be able to relate the infant to the mother and, and, and find meaning in that relationship. The, the relationship is what gives meaning to the performance of the self. The, the, the baby sees himself reflected in his mother's mm -hmm. pleasant gaze, for instance. And then in object relations theory, we say all those moments build up inside the self. The self is structured from its interactions with others in the early years, and then is modified over the years in future experiences with future people outside the family and inside the family throughout life. Mm -hmm. But that can become a vicious cycle, though, and in the case of trauma, now, whether it's trauma as, a, as an infant and uh, your relationship, one's relationship with one's mother, and then or also uh, uh, in one's environment, but also from previous generations. So something that uh, carries on and on. So uh, it is something that could be, uh, again, a vicious cycle in this case. There's no way around that. Every culture has its traumas. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I come from Britain. The big trauma there was the First World War, which decimated <clears throat> parts of the male population. <clears throat> then, then on top of that comes the Second World War. 
same thing again. Um, and then it's got women in the factories. Women are suddenly discovering their strengths and their value and their contribution, but they're losing their, their men. They have to replace the men in many, many cases, even after the war, because so many have died. So then in my family, there, there are many maiden aunts, which as a child, I never understood why these maiden aunts lived with their sister and husband. It's like, that's not what's happening in my house. What is that about? And it, they didn't, didn't really explain it to me. But later I realized these, these women had lost their fiancés in the war and there was no, no other man to turn to because there weren't any. So, so that, that affects the way a child experiences the world. You realize that women can do fine on their own. They can support themselves, but that, but that they deal with a lot of loss. And, you know, so then it was very important to me to be a woman who could support herself and not count on anybody. But a lot of it is unconsciously too. It happens unconsciously. So it's, it's really bringing it out that you can deal with it. And uh, we, we're not encouraged to do so in many cases. And even when you go to a professional, they might not even uh, look at that if they're not uh, psychoanalytically trained. So, and I think that's a, that's a huge loss because there's oh, so much that we can some, some who've been psychologically trained, they're so focused on the individual, the individual mm -hmm. roots mm -hmm. of conflict and so mm -hmm. on. The individual unconscious is what they study, but others, and I count myself in that group, and I think you do too, um, really want to set the person in their context, in their family, in the past of that family, in their culture, in the past of that culture. It's more holistic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and so and something that the, the country, the U.S. is suffering from is that history, that, that, that dark stain of, of slavery and what is going through. But we see that it affects everyone. It has these like uh, repercussions for everyone that has lived through it. And it's kind of in, in, a, in, a, in a different way in, in, in Germany with the, with the Nazis. And so you have this, this guilt, this shame, these, these feelings that are uh, continue to exist on an unconscious level until we deal with them. And I, I think we don't do enough in, 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 in facing that and really openly um, talking about it and accepting it in many ways. I think that's beginning to happen in this it's beginning country. to happen. I really yes. give Germany a lot of credit for how <laughs> they have really dealt with the actions of their forebears and its impact. Mm -hmm. on their mentality and on their relationships in Europe. And, and look how they, they really improved things for a lot of their countrymen and emerged as leaders in the European Union, mm -hmm. which was like unthinkable that Germany's chancellor would be the mm -hmm. politician for the whole of Europe. Unbelievable recovery mm -hmm. from a very, very dark period. Mm -hmm. But that attitude of I'm better than you, or there are certain groups that are beneath, almost beneath contempt, they're just to be got rid of, um, that's still with us. 
I grew up in Germany, so I and in a conservative town, and um, I, I experienced a lot of those things, and personally, and um, which was directed against me. And so it is, it is traumatizing, and it's it's for them too. I do understand that, but that is what you're mentioning. I'm better than you. This is something that a lot of people this misconception, a lot of people have it. And it, it is based on insecurity and it's based on not facing one's fears of oneself. And it, but it, it replicates trauma and it creates more trauma for, for, for others. And then they continue. So it's like this, it's kind of, we're trapped in many ways. Well, I, yeah, I think that dialogue is the answer, but also, also political measures need to be mm -hmm. put mm -hmm. in place for a kind of, regulation of equality of financial opportunity and the capacity to build wealth handed down from one family to another but also That's empathy i mean just basic things like empathy because they their conception is well these people are bad and evil these foreigners and and i had friends who who friends who had these thoughts and they said well i'm different and i i grew up and i, I was born in iran but grew up in germany and so um, they say, we, we like you, but we don't like others who look like you. And so it's like, there's no consolation there. It's like, well, if another person sees me, they would threaten me. And so you never feel at home. And I think this is, this is coming out here with a lot of like uh, experiences of immigrants now um, that we, we are talking about that and the effect of, of not just racism, but it's not being accepted, not being fully integrated in a society as seen as the other and that creates yeah. trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in my case, I look like the other white people in this country can't tell by looking that I'm an immigrant too. Mm -hmm. But but I have felt, you know, I just, I don't have the same history. I know other things. I, I laugh at other old TV shows. Like I never saw, what's his name, Johnny somebody in this country mm -hmm. that I, I just, I don't know those old jokes. I just, I can't connect to it. But as I say, I look, look that way. And then I realized that I used to defend myself in the slavery context by saying, yeah, but I'm from Scotland. We didn't have that there. I didn't grow up with that. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. I, 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 and then, then I realized, went to the, the African-American museum here. I realized Scottish sea captains were running the slave trade. And I'm not guilty, not at all. If I look at the historical perspective, there's a lot, a lot to work through, and then it's hard to find the words. I, I didn't live here in the era, the civil rights era. I've had to read about it. I wasn't there, mm -hmm. which makes a big difference in in how you comprehend the culture that you're in. So every everybody has a different struggle, of course, to locate themselves in the current conflict but we all need to work on it mm -hmm. i mean just because of my own personal experiences i don't feel like i have a certain country or home and wherever i am that's my home so so it's, wow. it's good in a sense but it's also very um i feel displaced in many ways because i cannot relate when people are nationalists it's like i i for me, it doesn't make sense. But at the same time, there's as long as like, well, I wish I had something like that, which I don't. 
So it's it's kind of like everything, I guess, has its its good and bad. Like when we look at technology too, the the good and bad of it. But again, it's how we use it and how I use that knowledge. And for me, it's easy to relate to others because I have lived through different experiences. And so my wife is Mexican. I went to Mexico to work there. And now it's just like a whole different dimension that's added, making it even more complex and blurry. But I love it this way. I enjoy well, it. But you have the advantage of language. I, yes. I assume you speak Spanish. Yeah, five languages. Farsi. Yeah. German. German. And French. English. Well. And mm -hmm. then just toss in French, because why mm -hmm. not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean that—that's another thing too. Of like, it, it opens up pathways of language of being able to use it to communicate with others, but yeah. there's also specific expressions in each of the languages that I like that you cannot translate. That comes oh, with it. a mindset, and I find that fascinating. Yeah. And that is fascinating. People are missing out when they don't have that. You know, and uh, I think I think people should also learn more more languages and travel and just see the world outside of the their own cocoon that they have of really going out and seeing different points of views, different lifestyles, to be able to um, accept them more. I think. Yes. Yes. And and to learn mm -hmm. useful ways of being that mm -hmm. you might not have thought of. Mm -hmm. And I think really like integration of seeing, you know, that ideas that we have about a specific group of people or race or ethnicity, they're misconceived because at the end, at the bottom of it, we're all humans and we all go through the same things and we suffer the same things. And, and we see that with the pandemic too. It's like, this is like, we're, we're all affected by it, no matter, of course, some more than others, but still you very cannot save yourself very much more than others yeah I that's mean, true. it really has thrown up a huge divide particularly african-american people suffering more from the pandemic than others mm -hmm. those who have more space to move around and more opportunities to live outdoors safely mm -hmm. um, have had a much uh, i'm not going to say an easy time but an easier mm -hmm. adjustment to the restrictions of the pandemic yeah. I think one of the, the, the another, another thing I'd like to just um, talk about here is also honesty of being honest with oneself. And uh, there is a lot of deception now, whether it's so we, we're talking through social media, media, friends, Avatars. family. Yeah. Exactly. And wow. so I, I think uh, of being able to face oneself, having that courage and being able to accept our own flaws that we have and misconceptions and ideas. And that's across the board. I mean, we, we, we don't want to people who victimize themselves. We don't want people who, uh, we, we just want to really face things and saying, okay, um, just from an objective point of view, um, what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? And so, and then deal with them. Yeah, capitalize on the strengths, deal with the weaknesses. And accept them. And, and, and it's and, okay. And related to that is accept my part mm -hmm. in any problems. Absolutely. Locate myself in the whole conflict and see where do I stand and what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. What have I done to contribute to this problem? Mm -hmm. And what can I do to solve it? Mm -hmm. yeah. 
yeah and, and and yeah really facing what's up the when the way one is and it's and, and that's the, the the great thing that neuroscience has shown us that we can change a lot of things we are not stuck our brain changes and our emotions change and that influences our brain and our body and it's all kind of again interconnected which is fascinating and um, but it also again it gives us a lot of opportunities but also a great amount of responsibility of making sure that we are on the right path and checking with ourselves and and in our societies i don't think there is enough of that and i, I I'm, I'm blessed with being a more introspective person but i think we all can really like working with ourselves is so vital and a lot of people just try to escape it or run away or distract themselves and um, really like sitting still and facing oneself, I think it's hugely important. I, that, <laughs> all I can do is put a big rubber stamp on what you just said. <laughs> so Great. important. Thank you, Arash. Yeah. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, uh, Dr. Jill Scharf. And uh, you are the Sigourney recipient. Um, uh, alongside your your husband you guys make great team uh, it's wonderful the work that you are doing I, I i highly applaud that and thank you so much for everything that you are contributing to the world uh, thank you for this interview as well thank you very much Arash. it's been a great pleasure bye-bye <laughs>